please stand and join us as we sing his praises. Let's lift our voices to praise our God.
We don't say that in desperation, but in joy, because we know that you are with us. Your work in us, individually and corporately, and we thank you for being present with us today. We pray that you would be glorified in our worship, that our hearts would be open to you as you speak into our lives through our worship. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. It is great to see all of you here and those of you who may be uh, watching on the streaming. And I want to invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. Just a quick word to uh, explain a bit more about the insert in your bulletin. On our first Sunday lunch experiment last November, it was a great success. So the college ministry group want to again welcome students to a potluck meal so we can get better acquainted and be more involved with each other as a church family. Those who can come and bring food, especially uh, international food, but not necessarily, if you can bring an international dish, They've been signing up in the adult Sunday school classes, but this is just another opportunity to sign. The offering's coming, so you could uh, say, yes, we're coming. You don't need to do it twice if you've already signed up. Students and families alike, please just mark and tear off the info sheet and put it into the offering to date. Everybody's welcome. Somebody said, don't we like academy students? We love academy students, but we feel like we've... uh, we've kind of neglected our college students. They come in like sheep in and out, and we hardly know them. And uh, if anybody wants to cook a big pot of uh, Chinese food, that's fine, or uh, Mexican food, or just international, fine. So, no, we're not excluding anybody. Bring food, bring yourselves, come get acquainted. Thank you. Thank you for uh, all of your prayers and cards and various acts of kindness. As I was going through my illness last week, I'm feeling so much better. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And thanks to Paul and others who filled in uh, last Sunday as well as the time before and after uh, during that. And I appreciate it. One of the things I missed last week was having the opportunity to introduce to you our uh, intern for this semester. And uh, we are thrilled to have Will Bruno, who is a senior at the college, to serve as an intern this semester, uh, pastoral ministry intern. You'll be seeing him in a variety of ways uh, throughout the semester, but we won't have a chance to introduce him to you and give him a chance to say a word or two this morning. Will? Good morning, everyone. Um, Yeah, just wanted to say thank you to those of you who I've already gotten a chance to meet. Um, I'm already feeling very welcome here, serving with this team, uh, this incredible team. So um, I look forward to meeting more of you in the weeks to come, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks. I do encourage you, even after the service today, take the opportunity to introduce yourself to Will, and next week give him a test to see if he remembers all of your names. Uh, You have one name to remember. He has a whole bunch, but uh, we're excited about him being here. We want to take the the, uh, opportunity now to express our gratitude to God. 
uh, in a variety of ways, and one of those is through giving of our tithes and offerings. We'll ask the ushers to come forward and assist us. privileges we have as the church is to pray together. And sometimes when we pray, um, 
the, uh, the posture in which we pray uh, seems to express our hearts. Sometimes it feels like we should pray standing, sometimes sitting, sometimes kneeling. Uh, whatever you choose to do today as we pray together, please feel free to do that. If you want to kneel and come to the altar rail, you're invited to do that as well as we pray together. Father, we come to this moment of prayer today because we know that we need you. We know that you alone are the answer to the burdens that we bring. And because you are perfectly good and holy and powerful to answer our prayers, we bring them to you. We pray today, Father, for all who are grieving. Loss comes to us. Pain and hurt comes to us in so many different ways in this broken world. In our grief, may we know your comforting presence. We pray for all who are struggling with illness. We pray especially for Storer Emmett, Ben King, Mildred Berry, Doris Hesepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Oral Buecher, Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Beverett. Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our hearts and our minds today. We pray for your healing power in each one. We pray today for our local institutions as we move into the second half of the academic year. We pray that you will bless these institutions all around us and pray that this will be a, a time not only of of intellectual growth and learning, but of relationship building and of spiritual growth. We pray, Father, for uh, the churches around us. And today, we pray for the Riverside Assembly of God in Wellsville and Pastor Francisco. Pour out your anointing upon this congregation as they love one another and as they love others. May they be salt and light to their community and beyond. Father, we pray today for your work around the world, and we think of Steve and Margie Doty, their work with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Thank you for all the ways in which you have used them through the years and continue to do so as they continue to bring the word, your word, to people who need to hear. Bless them as they work in a variety of ways that others may understand your word in their heart language. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, many of whom face persecution and opposition for their faith in you. We pray, Father, for Pastor Yua, who has been sentenced to prison for his faith. We pray, Father, that you would bless his church and his, and his family and, and, and himself as he goes through this very difficult time we pray, Father, that you would exonerate him, that you would give him your heart, and that people, even those who are persecuting him, 
that they would see you in him. Father, we pray for refugees around the world and the struggles that they face. And we ask that you would be present with them, bring healing, bring openness for them to return to their homes. We pray, Father, for all struggling through recent disasters and terrorist attacks and ask that you would bring peace and healing in the midst of so much pain and anguish. We pray for our nation, Father. We pray that on this inauguration weekend, we pray for our president and his staff. We know that this election has been divisive in our nation, maybe in our church. Some are celebrating this weekend, some are grieving. Father, help us to remember that our lives are first and foremost about you. You are our only hope. We trust you. And whatever side we may be on, help us to commit ourselves to pray for President Trump. That his heart will be open to you, that he will lead in a way and work for policies that give hope to the hopeless, help the most vulnerable in our nation and in our world. Father, we pray for the most vulnerable among us and this weekend when we celebrate the sanctity of life your gift to us we pray father that you will help your people to be an influence on our world to care about every person we pray lord that you will give us a passion for human life whatever struggles or burdens people are facing Whatever difficulties they may be, Father, give us hearts of compassion and love for everyone. Father, we pray that you will help us to see you in all of life. Help us to cling to you for every bit of our strength. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them again today in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I invite all who are able to join me in standing for this morning's scripture, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. And following the scripture, children are dismissed for children's church and junior church. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asked you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord.
I suspect that most of us have a negative perception of obedience. We, you know, there are some things that come naturally to us. Obedience is not one of those things, right? I mean, obedience is something we have to teach people. We have to train them. For our pets, we have obedience school. We have a whole school of of obeying, learning how to obey. And with our children, we have to teach them how to obey. And as we get older, there is something in us that has a tendency to rebel against obedience. When we hear a command, we typically are thinking about the excuses we can make for why we don't have to do it. When we come across some kind of commitment, we're looking for loopholes of how we can get around it. I mean, isn't that really what the whole IRS tax code is about? Right? I mean, the whole thing is you can't just say to people, look, pay your whatever percent. I mean, we spend hours and hours and hours trying to do as little as we possibly can to pay it. And that's not saying that's bad, but I'm just saying that's what we do. And we're looking for loopholes. And they keep making new laws because people keep finding new loopholes. There is something in us in our human nature that has a tendency to, to look negatively on the whole concept of obedience. And it's not just obedience about the world and each other. It's also about God. It's part of our sinful nature. It's part of the brokenness of our human nature that we rebel against obedience. And so God creates the law. When he sets his people up as a nation of Israel, he gives them a law. And you would think he could just give them those Ten Commandments and that would be enough. If you follow these, you're good. But he realizes that everyone's going to be asking, okay, but what about this? And what about that? And how far do I have to go and this? And, and so he says, let me give you more. And so you have this whole section of the Old Testament that is laws. And if you read through those, if, you're, you know, if you ever do the practice of reading through this, the Bible in a year, that's usually where people get bogged down. The laws over and over again, Leviticus, how to do the sacrifices, all these things. And for our contemporary minds, we look at that and we think, what is the point of all this? And I don't know that I can totally answer that, but it is about God trying to, to help us understand what obedience looks like. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to teach, he is just as concerned about obedience as what God has been with his people through the ages. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what it looks like for kingdom citizens to obey God. And he uses six examples of what obedience looks like. Now, if you, as we're reading through these pa- this passage, I'm sure in your mind you're thinking, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? We're supposed to, what? You oh, have all these questions. And quite frankly, to try to take this big passage in all in one time is difficult. But that's what we're cr- going to try to do. And you could preach a sermon or multiple sermons, and books have been written, about each of those sections, each of those examples as we try to understand it. But I really just kind of want to try to think about the overview today. It, because all of them, in one way or another, are really saying, in some ways, the same thing about what it looks like to obey God. So we take a moment and work our way through them. The first thing he says is, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, don't get angry at people. Don't have that spirit of bitterness in your heart. 
Because that bitterness gets into you, and it's like it gets into your bloodstream. And you're not just angry at that person, but when anger overwhelms you and when bitterness takes over you, you become bitter and angry about everything and everyone. It's not just about committing an act of murder against someone. It's having that hatred, bitterness in your heart that infiltrates us as human beings. Then he says, it's not just, not just commit, don't commit adultery, but don't lust after another person. Again, it comes back to the, the attitude of our hearts. And, and when you break down the whole idea of lust, it is really a, a sense of objectifying other people. It is using other people to gratify our own desires. And again, it's not just about that particular moment or that particular person, as damaging and dangerous as that is. When we begin to see other people like that, we begin to look at all of life like that. And every person becomes someone we manipulate and objectify and use to get to the end that we want to gratify ourselves. And ultimately, just as with anger, it's not just about other people, but it's also with God... So this idea of objectifying and manipulating people to get what we want, we do the same thing with God. We start feeling like we can can manipulate God, we can use God to get to our own end. And we become absorbed in the spirit of self-gratification. When he talks about, when he's talking about lust and he talks about gouging out the eye and cutting off your hand, he's not literally saying we should do that. Though there have been people through the ages who have taken that literally. I think he's just talking about how serious this is. What a dangerous thing it is to let yourself be absorbed by that kind of mindset in how you view other people. And then he says, you've heard it said that... that um, it's, it's okay to divorce someone. And I tell you, it's not okay. Now, you, you look back in the history of Israel. You read back and, and God realized that there were relationships among married couples that were so damaging that divorce was the better option. And so he told Moses, all right, I'm going to give people permission to divorce. And that got interpreted as, I can divorce someone whenever I want to. God has, God has, has um, blessed my decision to divorce someone. Now, of course, in that culture, and even in Jesus' day, the males had all the power. A, a wife could not divorce her husband. Only a husband could divorce a wife. And there were many, some of the rabbis who would say to them, you can do that for any reason you want. And so there are stories of a rabbi saying, if your wife burns your supper and that displeases you, divorce her. If, if, she doesn't, if she doesn't buy groceries in the right place, divorce her. If she doesn't get the right kind of pomegranate for dinner, divorce her. It doesn't really make any difference. You have the right to divorce a woman for any reason you want. And Jesus is saying, no. He is saying sometimes in a relationship, in a marriage relationship... Divorce is the lesser of two evils, but you cannot take that lightly. You cannot do that without seriously seeing that it is the last resort. And Jesus is is concerned here. All the questions about divorce in that culture were, 
about from the male's perspective. And Jesus is in essence saying, I'm not nearly as concerned about the males who have all the power to do this. I'm concerned about the victims, the wives and the children. Wives who have no way of supporting themselves in that culture except for doing things that bring even more shame upon them. They have no way of, of, of feeding and clothing their children without taking steps that would bring shame on them. And Jesus is saying, this is a serious thing. This is not something you take lightly. And then he moves into uh, talking about oaths. And in, the, in that day, as he says here, some, you've heard it said that, that you, depending on what you take, that place your oath on, that's what makes the difference. So you can swear about heaven and, and Jerusalem, but you can't swear about these other things. And Jesus says, this is so ridiculous. Why are you people making these kinds of divisions? Here's the bottom line. Be trustworthy. Why do you have to swear about things? You know, when we were kids, you know, one of the statements you say, are you kidding me? Is that true? It crossed my heart, hope that I stick a needle in my eye, right? I mean, that's those kinds of things that we'd say. Why do we have to say those things, as disgusting as those things are? Why, why do we have to say that? Because people don't believe us. Why do we, why do we swear? I, I swear this is the truth. Why do we have to say those things? Because our word is not as reliable as it should be. Now, there are some people who have taken these words of Jesus say you shouldn't take oaths in court. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I think he's talking about relationships that we have with each other. And he's saying, be so, let your word be so reliable that when you say yes, everyone knows you mean yes. And when you say no, everyone knows you mean no. And they never have to wonder, okay, they said yes, but are they going to really do that? They said no, but are they really going to stick to that? See, here's the big part of the problem is, as citizens of the kingdom of God, this is not just about our reputation, it's about God's reputation. Because if people can't trust people who say we follow God, why would they trust God? And it undermines our witness, it undermines our presence, and it undermines the character and the nature of God that we represent. And Jesus says, you don't need all of that. Just say yes and people believe you, and say, or say no and people believe you. And then he talks about this whole idea of retaliation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, some of the things that Jesus quotes here are not actually in Scripture. But this one is. In the, in, the, in the law that God gives, he says to them, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And that has been interpreted as, I can retaliate against people, and God blesses that. God's okay with that. Now, you've got to look back to the ancient culture. In that culture, back in the early days of Israel, if you put out my eye, I'll take your life. If you knock out my tooth, I might take your life. Because we're always upping the ante, always doing a little bit more. And God says to Israel, no, 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 no. The most you can do is what was done to you. That's the ceiling. 
That's the most you can do. So if someone puts out your eye, the most you can do is put out theirs. And actually, this context of what Jesus, what God says this to them, probably is in the court of law. So that the that the uh, the, the the judgment against someone who commits this act is that against them, but no more. But that got interpreted as God blesses me being retaliating against others. And Jesus says, how about we try something else? How about forgiveness? Instead of continuing the cycle of violence with each other, let's stop that cycle of violence. Let's forgive people who hurt us. Let's bring an end to this idea of retaliation and instead create a whole new spirit of forgiveness. It throws a wrench in in what everyone tends to do. It brings the wheels of retaliation to a halt. And so he says, you know, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. There, There was a, the Roman soldiers in Jesus' day would often demand people to carry their equipment, and it became such a such a bad thing that the Roman government said, okay, the most you can ask someone to do is to carry your stuff one mile. And I was reading about a scenario that uh, someone said, what if, what if uh, it happened this way? A soldier came to a man who's a Christian and said, carry my stuff for a mile. And the guy says, okay. So he picks up his stuff, they carry it a mile, and they get to the mile, and the soldier says, okay, that's enough. And the guy says, well, you know what? I don't mind. I'll carry it another mile if you want. And the soldier says, no, 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 you can't do that. It's against the law. The guy says, but I really wouldn't mind. I'm happy to carry it for you. He says, what are you trying to do to me? I can get in trouble for that. I could get fined or flogged. What what are you doing? And the guy says, I just want to be helpful. It throws a wrench in the whole system of you can only do this much. And Jesus is saying, no. Be willing to forgive. Be willing to do more even than's asked of you. And then you come to the last one and he says, you've heard it said that you love your enemy, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is one of those places that is not in the scriptures. And you'll notice through all of this, Jesus doesn't say the scripture says this, but I tell you this. He says, you've heard it said or you've been taught, this is how to interpret these things. And Jesus is saying that's a wrong interpretation. And this is one of those cases where it's not in the scripture. Now, Mike, it could be implied perhaps in the scripture, but that's not what he says at all. Nowhere does the scripture say you are to hate your enemy. And again, Jesus says, when our enemies hurt us, when there's pain and agony and anguish, instead of hating them, love them. Because anybody can love people who love you. Even pagans do that. People have nothing to do with the kingdom do that. Big deal if you do that. What sets you apart as citizens of the kingdom is that when people hate you, you love them. When people hurt you, you forgive them. You love them. It's one of the things that sets us apart as citizens of the kingdom. Because I think what Jesus is saying in every one of these examples, he's trying to help us understand that that he's not saying that that the behavior doesn't matter. He's not saying that, that... Committing murder and being angry at someone are the same thing. I'm pretty sure murder is still worse than that. It is still the worst of the two things. He's not equating, he's not equalizing those things. He's simply saying 
that it's not enough to just not do these heinous things. It's about our attitude, our spirits, our hearts to want to do those things. And we're asking God to help us not want to do them. It's about not just settling for this is the lowest bar we can find. It's not good enough in the kingdom. In the kingdom, we're not thinking, what's the least I can do and still be a part of the kingdom? You never hear God talk about, this is the least you can do. It's about being open to Christ in such a way that we're always asking, how much can I do? How much can I forgive? How much can I love? How much can I, can I hang in there with people? That's what the kingdom is continually calling us to. We have a tendency to live in what's the least I can do. We do that with all kinds of things. We do that with what we do, for instance, in giving to the church. You know, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, the law said you give 10%. That's, that's the minimum amount that God's people are required, told to give to the kingdom. And there are many, many of us who live with the mindset of, okay, let me make sure I figure this out to make sure I don't get more than 10%. And Paul says in, in his letter, he says, look, it's, the tithe is the minimum amount, but let me talk to you about what God really wants. He wants you to be generous. He wants you to be thinking, how much can I give? How generous can I possibly be? And whether we're talking about our money, our time, our gifts, whatever the case may be, our lives. The kingdom is never about how little can I do and still get by. It's not about that. It's about being so open to Christ that we're continually asking, what do you want me to do? How far do you want me to go? How much do you want me to give? It's about more and more and more because it's about openness to Christ. It's having that heart, that attitude that wants what Christ wants. We often get so wrapped up when we talk about obedience with checklists. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing with the religious folk, particularly the Pharisees and, and the scribes and the teachers of the law. Their whole thing is, I've got this checklist of, of things, and as long as I can check off the list, I'm good. And Jesus is saying to them and to us, it's never about a checklist. Because a checklist, when we talk about just rules and checklists, it always, it's always rooted in me. Checklists always lead to selfishness. Again, it's back to what's the least I can do. It's not about a checklist. It's about valuing each other. Every one of these examples Jesus gives us, he's trying to help us understand that even the law as it was originally intended is about people. God gives the law as a means not just about openness to him, but openness to him that leads us to value and respect each other and love each other. And to think more about others than about ourselves. That's where this whole discussion Jesus has with the Pharisees about what you can do on the Sabbath. He keeps healing people on the Sabbath and they keep getting angry about it because that's breaking the rule. And Jesus says, look, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is important. It is vital. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to throw it out. I'm not saying to you that God made a mistake when he gave Israel the law. 
No, I'm trying to help you understand that this was what the law was about from the beginning. It was about helping us be people who care about others. And every one of those examples, what you see is, how do we relate to other people? How do we value and respect other people? Forgiving them, thinking more about them than about ourselves. It's that want to in our hearts. A number of years ago, I, I saw the, the movie, it's called The Breakup. It's, it's actually a very depressing movie, and I would not recommend it to you to watch at all. But there is a scene in the movie that I thought was actually quite profound. This movie has Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston or this couple, and they're starting to have some difficulties. And one night, they invite some friends over for dinner, and she makes this huge meal. And, and uh, you get the scene where she, she, uh, they leave, the friends leave, and she closes the door and locks it and comes back. And he's lying on the couch playing a video game, and she says, I'm going to go do the dishes. He goes, okay, great, and he's playing this game. And she stands there and looks at him, and she says... You know, I could use some help doing the dishes. He goes, you know what? I'm so tired. had a long day. And he said, I just want to lay back and just play a game. And she starts saying, but I want you to help me do this. He goes, okay, I'll help you, but let's do them tomorrow. He said, I don't want to do them tomorrow. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to leave them in the sink and wake up to that tomorrow. And he says, who cares? She says, I care. And she keeps badgering about it. And finally, he throws down his controller and he says, fine, I'll help you do the dishes. And she says, no, I don't want you to help me do the dishes. And he is so confused. He has no clue. And he says, you just said to me, you want me to do dishes? She says, no, I don't want you to do dishes. I want you to want you to do the dishes. I want your heart, your attitude to want to do that because you love me and you care about me. And you can see it's important to me. And as convoluted as that may be, it's true. And this is the heart that God is, is seeking from his people, that we want to do what he wants us to do. It's not just that we do it because we checked off a list. It's there's something in our hearts that says, God, I want to follow you. I want to obey you. And I want to be so open to you. And I want to care so much about people that as you fill me with your spirit and as you lead me, it becomes the most natural thing in the world for me to do. That's what Jesus means when he says, he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. When he says, I've come to fulfill the law, he's basically saying to them, this is what it looks like to obey God. This is what it looks like. Vulnerability, selflessness, valuing and respecting other people, being so completely open to God that even if he leads us to a cross... Willingly, lovingly do it. We forgive. We care. We respect. And that's what he also means when he says your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Who think they're good just because they've done the minimum amount. It's never about the minimum amount. And I also think that that's what Jesus means when you get to the end of this thing and he makes this statement that has flabbergasted people for centuries. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
I can't imagine anything you read more discouraging than that, right? How in the world is that possible? I think part of the understanding of that is that we have an understanding of what perfect means as you never make a mistake. That's how we interpret perfect. But the word that Jesus uses here, it it has this sense of not so much of never making a mistake, but as completion, wholeness. It's about the spirit and the attitude that we have. It's this mindset that that says, I realize I'm going to make mistakes, but the want to in my heart is to look like Jesus. The want to in my spirit is to, to look like my father. To care about people the way he does. To be open to the Father the way Jesus is. It makes me think of the song, you know, I'm going to reveal a little bit about my age. But a song when I was in college that Amy Grant sang. It was actually written by Gary Chapman. And he wrote this about himself, but it comes, so it interprets it a little differently. But he says, I may not be every mother's dream for her little girl. And my face may not grace the mind of everyone in the world, but that's all right. As long as I can have one wish, I pray. When people look inside my life, I want to hear them say, He's got his father's eyes. He looks like his father. He looks like his father. Guess what Jesus is trying to help us understand? That when you boil it all down, obedience to God is a desire to look like our Father. And while that feels like a burden, while it feels like something that seems overwhelming, I think Jesus is telling us that it's really the pathway to blessing. He starts the sermon with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And I don't think that is something Jesus says at the beginning and then we just sort of move on to something else. I think it is the spirit of the whole sermon. Everything Jesus says in the sermon brings us back to this is how people in the kingdom are blessed. And blessing leads Obedience is, is, a, is a route, a pathway to blessing because it's freedom. As I think about what does it mean for God to bless us, often we think it means God to make us happy, God to make life easy. God, is, God I get what I want. I get to control my life. That's not at all what he means. I think if you boil down blessing, I think he's saying it's freedom as opposed to the way we so often live in fear and anxiety. It is the freedom to give our lives to Christ, to let go of control of our lives, instead of trying to live our lives proving to people that we are worthwhile and validating our lives and trying to prove how important we are and how good we are. And quite frankly, that is exhausting. It's exhausting to live like that. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to live like that. Just let it go. You can be free from all of that burden 
of trying to prove how wonderful you are to people and just live in the spirit of openness to God and valuing, loving, caring for other people like Jesus. That's freedom. It seems to me that probably the person that might exemplify that as much as anyone in our contemporary world probably is Mother Teresa. You know, she had her issues. You read her, her letters and journals since she's died, and you could see the, many of the, the difficulties that she struggled with. But I think most people would look at her and say, that woman lived a blessed life. Not because life was easy, but because she lived in a spirit of openness to God that led her places she didn't intend to go. And lived a life of caring and loving for other, other people who nobody else cared for and nobody else loved. And quite frankly, none of us would probably even know about her if there weren't some people who spent enough time with her that they decided to write books about her. But I never got the impression that she was trying to prove how valuable she was. She was too busy caring for people. Too busy seeking God's will for her life. Too busy living in openness to God. And live the life of blessing and freedom. I have no idea what, what may feel like bondage to you as you think about obedience to God. But I just know all of us, in one way or another, struggle with it. And Jesus wants to set us free. To experience the blessing of God, the freedom of God by living in openness to Him and having a heart of love and compassion and grace to others. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will speak into our hearts, teach us. Help us to trust you and to be set free in your grace. We pray this through Christ. Please stand and join us as we sing. darkness and
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.